0: You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. In the name of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You can have a seed. Good morning, church. Our baby is here, if you haven't heard. Let's get that out of the way. Yeah, that's good. Got a new baby. Um, Praise God. Michelle and the baby are fine. I know that's, you're kind of like blah, 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 and you're going to preach, but I know that's what you really want to hear this morning. So they're fine. Baby Elliot's cute. You'll see a picture of her later at our all-church meeting because that's super important as well. Um, But seeing your child for the first time, parents, if you've ever, you can, you know it, right? You remember it like it's yesterday. It's this incredibly sacred thing. It never gets old. You can replay that moment again and again and again. And it never gets old. It's one of those moments that change you. Even if it's your sixth child, that moment is still just, hey, that's okay, right? <laughs> Even if it's your sixth. I remember seeing Mateo for the first time. I was a basket case. Uh, I could not believe that I was a father. And then seeing Elliot, this, our, our, our sixth child, our fifth daughter, that first sight, uh, I'm just never going to forget that. It's such a sacred thing. It's one of those moments that when you're there, you just don't want to leave it, you want to stay there in this moment of sight of, your first, of this child. We don't give enough credit to the power of seeing people or things or, or really being present in a moment. Maybe it's not having a child, maybe it's something else. Maybe some of you can remember the first time you laid eyes on your, your uh, girlfriend or boyfriend, your wife or husband. I remember that as well. They have these moments where we see something and it's not as if we're just observing something, but we're, if we're present to the moment, we're, we're there. We're participating in the reality of something that's so profound. participating what's this this moment this morning that we're celebrating in the transfiguration is a lot like that moment it's a first sight it's really a a quite stunning story for anyone who's like a modern folk someone these day and age this is like wait what what is it that the disciples are seeing what is it that Christians believe actually happened really it's almost unbelievable But this story, and it's like one of those uh, Christian stories that's so often overlooked. People don't know what to do with the transfiguration. Like, what in the world is that? Can we just move on, get to Easter or something? No, we can't because there's something so significant for our everyday Christian lives in this transfiguration account. Something fundamentally significant. We might not even imagine how significant this could be for us. But this story, to get to the point is the ultimate vision of God. Don't we want to see God as Christians? Don't we long for that day when we say, oh, I can't wait till I see the Lord face to face. I want to see God for who he is. God, show me a sign. We pray all these kinds of things all the time. Our day in and day out lives, are, as Christians, governed around this highest goal of seeing God. And it's not just observing him, but it's coming close to him and participating with him. This is what's happening in the transfiguration story. To see God. Through scripture, seeing God isn't just some like peripheral, like, well, that's a bonus, that's a plus. Seeing God is is like at the heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian, to, to seek after God, to long for him. You remember Psalm 27, verse 4? One thing I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. These three disciples, they got to go up this mountain with Jesus for this, the sight of his glory, They were living out this psalmist's prayer to behold the beauty of the Lord. But we've gotta ask this question. When these disciples come to the top of the mountain, what changes? Did Jesus start glowing? Did Did he take on more glory than was there before? Or did something change in the sight of the disciples? What changed? Did Jesus get more glory or did the disciples see him for who he really was? Were their eyes opened? St. John of Damascus, an early church father, writes that Jesus appeared to his disciples as he was, by opening their eyes, by giving sight to those who were blind. Nothing changed in Jesus. They got to see him as he really was, as he always had been and as he always will be. But the disciples' sight, their eyes were opened as if they were blind before. Now they got to see God in his glory in the person of Jesus. And this sight, this visual, this experience of the disciples, this was a total gift to them. Moses, I mean, Moses was there, Elijah was there. I know some of you have seen famous people before. You get kind of flustered and you don't know what to say, and you start saying really dumb things. Like, I I remember, I have plenty of stories about this with me. Um, like one time I met N.T. Wright and forgot to introduce him to my wife and just like, hey, honey, take a picture of us. Or one time early on in my career at, at HP, I met the vice president who came by while I was in flip-flops getting a cup of coffee, and he said, oh, how you doing, Sean? And, and I was like, I, 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 <laughs> those kind of moments, like, what do you say in a moment like that? Well, the disciples were in a very similar moment, making a fool of themselves, not knowing really what to do because they were so terrified. Moses and Elijah were there, not just for ornamentation, but to actually say something about who Jesus was. Moses, who received the law and gave it to God's people. Elijah, who represented the prophets, all the company of prophets. In effect, their presence, these two men there, were saying yes. Everything that the law and the prophets was pointing to, everything that they were saying about this Messiah that was to come, this is him. And we're here to verify that this is the one but we gotta wonder, if you could take in this scene, there it is, you gotta wonder, what does a sight like that really do for disciples? Besides terrify them, besides leave them without words to say, besides just getting to experience Elijah and Moses and the glory of God and Jesus, what does it do to us? That's a really good question. I think it's a question that could change our whole life if we actually took it seriously. Isn't seeing God, being near him, seeing him like this, isn't this what we are all actually after? Isn't this our most fundamental and chief desire in our lives? What would a sight like this do for us? We might think, no, Sean, I don't really want to see Jesus or Moses or Elijah, like big deal. What I want is more money in my life. Yeah, that's what I want to see. I want to see piles of cash in my life. No, you don't. You actually don't. Maybe you don't know this, but you don't care about piles of paper. What you actually care about is security and comfort that money and wealth can bring to you. That's what you actually want, if we're honest, right? Or maybe you're like, no, okay, fine. It's not money, Sean, it's intimacy. I don't want to be alone. I don't don't wanna be alone for my whole life. I wanna be known by people. I want people to know me. I want to be with someone. No, it's actually not true. Let's get a little bit more honest. What we really desire is for someone to know the most deepest part of us, for us to know the same thing about someone else. We want to be seen. We want to be known. It's not just intimacy. It's not just flings. It's not just dating for dating's sake. No, deep underneath that desire to be with someone is actually to be known by them and loved by them. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's not intimacy in that way. Maybe it's, it's recognition or power or respect. That's, that's what I'm after. I could care less about seeing God. My chief aim is like, I want to be recognized. I want to be empowered. I want to be respected in the world. These are nice things. They can be nice, right? They can be abused, but they can be certainly nice things. It's not entirely bad to Desire that people have some respect for you. I think that's totally fine. But it's also, again, it's not really what any of us want. It's not what we're ultimately looking for. Even under this desire to be recognized or have power to be respected, it is a desire to know that we are more than this life. That we have significance and meaning. And though we may die, that, that maybe our legacy will live on after us. That we've had some effect that's bigger than us. We want to know when we go to bed that we are bigger than our successes and our failures. There's more meaning in our lives than that. All of these desires that we think we're actually hunting after. Every sing, think of what it is that you really desire, that think keeps you up at night, you're like, Lord, I, just give me this and I'll be happy. Whatever that is, those desires always lead us to something beyond them, something deeper. That's why nobody is ever actually satisfied with money or power or recognition or respect. There's always something more. What's the thing that's behind the thing? What's it? What's the more behind these desires that we have? St. Augustine writes that all human desire, every single human desire, is actually a desire for God. It's just often confused or twisted. In his famous line from his Confessions, he prayed to God, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. That's the truth. And to admit this is like to admit that you are a human being. This is how we've been fashioned. This isn't like exceptional. God has put these desires in the deepest part of your hearts to long for him, to be near him. This is what it means to be truly human. Can we behold this thing that we truly desire? Beyond money and power and respect this this thing behind the thing? Can we really behold God? Can we take hold of him? Can we have him for ourselves if this is truly what we desire? It's an empty life, friends. To search for something and to never find it. To desire something and never really take hold of it. It leaves us wanting. If God is what our hearts most deeply desire, we need to ask, can we have him? Can we see him? You may know the story of Moses asking to see God. It was actually just along these same lines of desire for God. He was told that he could not see God and live. Do you remember this story? And so Moses was, Lord, can I see your face? No, you're going to die. You can't see me and live, Moses. Come on now. Not a bad question. It's actually a really wonderful question. Lord, I want to see you. And so Moses instead is stuffed into a cliffside and God covers him with his hand while he passes by. And he allows Moses to see the backside of him. But here in the story, we read these three disciples. Check this out. In this story of the transfiguration, we read these three disciples that get a glimpse of the face of God. Is this the same Bible? You can't see God and live, and yet these disciples come face to face with the divinity of Jesus. Wow, is that possible? Paul says, they see Jesus, the glory of God. They see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see the person in whom there is, listen, perfect security. In Jesus, when we look to his face, when we see him, we see the person who is full of intimacy for us. We see the person from which power comes, the source of power. Himself is what we find in Jesus. You want to know what your life's all about? What's the meaning of all of this? You find it nowhere else than in Jesus, the face of God. And the Son, Jesus, he not not only resembles the Father, but is identical to him. And And this Christ, who remains Son of God, even in his humanity, is the unmediated access to the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are one. Everything that is good, everything that we enjoy, everything we long for, can be seen in this person of Christ whose glory now shines on the face of these disciples. If we really can take hold of this transfiguration story, if we can really journey up this mountain, we begin to see that life is not found anywhere else than in the face of Jesus, being near him, seeing his glory shining upon us. This is what it truly means to live. To have these good things, to take hold of the thing we desire that is God, is to come to the face of Jesus. So track with me. We're going to do a little bit like theological spelunking here. And it's going to, you're going to love it. Hang in there with me. You guys are smart. You can hang in there. This is, this is super important, but I, and I could like riff on this for a while because it's super, it's just amazing. But track with me here. His humanity, Jesus's humanity is not merely an instrument. This is so important for us to understand because so many Christians get this wrong. His humanity, his flesh and blood is not an instrument. It's not a means to an end. It's not just some garment that he throws on top of his divinity. Jesus didn't become human just so that you and I could get a vial of forgiveness blood and call it good. Does that make sense? It's not an instrument for us to use. This way of thinking about Jesus's body leads us into like severe heresy and error and confusion. So like steer clear. His body is not an instrument, not a garment. His body is not a means to an end. His body is the very flesh, track with me, Jesus' body is the very flesh of the everlasting God. That's like fundamentally different than Jesus' body is just here so that he can die for us and that emotionally we can like be stirred to like turn to him or something. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's way more than that. His flesh is not just some garment, some thing to signal to us something else. His flesh is the flesh of the everlasting God. So what exactly are we looking at when we see Jesus in the transfiguration? When we lay eyes on him, we behold his humanity and his divinity is visible to us. Without separation or distinction, humanity, divinity in Christ. That seems like such a difficult thing to believe or to track with. Or, like, where do you put that in your head? It doesn't fit. It's unbelievable almost. That creation, that humanity and divinity are reunited in this person of God. Now, if you can see this, let's come back to the surface. If you can see that when we look to Jesus and we see his flesh, his humanity, and his divinity visible to us, we see in this one person creation and heaven reunited in the person of Jesus. If you can see this, you can literally see salvation. Salvation. This is where it's all headed. When you read Revelation, what do we see? Just spirits flying around with no bodies? No. Earth burning in hell and like, you know, and like, forget about that. Who cares? It was just like material and we're throwing that away. No. What we see when we actually read the Bible is this Heaven and earth reunited as it ought to be, God dwelling among his people, you and I, our bodies resurrected. Our faith is so material and carnal and it's being resurrected and renewed. And in the person of Jesus, we get to see this future in the present. Does that make sense? His humanity, his divinity, heaven and earth united in this person of God. So this is why we can literally say that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one who is reconciling heaven and earth in his own body. That's a trip, that's amazing. So to see Jesus, to lay lay eyes upon him is actually to lay eyes upon the future come to us. The good work of God being brought to the present, the reconciliation of all things, salvation in fleshed, whoa, whoa. This is where most Christians stop. They'll go, whoa, theology is amazing. We see it, Sean. That's like, wow, that's incredible. We think so fondly of Jesus now. How incredible. We can recall him to our minds and our hearts. We sing to him, we close our eyes, and we raise our hands to him. That's good enough, right? No. It never is. Once we see him, once we see Jesus, we have this deep desire for more than just some visual recognition of him, some intellectual exercise about him. We want communion. When you lay eyes on Jesus, you can't just observe. It's like a new baby. You see a new baby, what do you want to do? You want to hold the baby, bring it close to you. It's the same thing with the Lord. When you see who he really is, you can't just live apart from him. You've got to come close and be near him to be with him. Brothers and sisters, that's where we're heading this morning. As we ascend this mountain, we lay eyes upon Jesus. We're not just going to sit in our chairs and think fondly of Jesus in our heads or in our hearts, but we're actually going to come and take hold of him, to be with him. This morning, we get to see the glory of God in Jesus and to have him placed in our hands. That same glorified flesh that the disciples saw is the same glorified flesh that is given to you, not just to look at, but to consume that it would be a part of you, that you would digest it, that you would be consumed by the life of God. You can see, friends, why Holy Eucharist is not just some like peripheral things that some Christians are into, but has been this central figure in the life of all Christian devotion throughout history. Let's not say all, let's say most. You can see why this is such a big deal. Because it's the way that Jesus communes with his people. It's the way that we see him and come near to him to participate with him, not just cognitively or intellectually or even just visually, but his flesh is made into our flesh. His life-giving body brings life to our bodies and souls. And I know that some of us who come from different church backgrounds, this is like making us a little squirmish, like, oh, my gosh, this is like really material uh, take on Christianity. I don't know if I can hang with this. Uh, Then you know you're starting to get it because it's that amazing, and you're right on track. The gospel isn't just good news of a spiritual idea. It's not just an announcement of some thought, some inner spirituality. It's the good news that God has been made flesh and blood and is reconciling us, real people, with flesh and blood to himself. That's the gospel. It's material that way. And in Holy Eucharist, when we come to his table, the Lord offers us himself, saying in his own words. You don't believe me? Here's the words of Jesus, okay? By eating my flesh and drinking my blood, you enter into me and I into you. Yeah, drop the mic on that. Goodness gracious. This is what it means to commune with God. And when we commune with him, we come down from this mountain. You know what's such good news? Is that Jesus doesn't just stay up here, and we get to remember this experience that we had with him, but he remains with us when we come down the mountain. His life in us. This is such good news for those of us who, in our life right now, cry out for God's help. Are you there this morning where, God, I need you near me? I need your help yesterday. Where are you when I need you, God? Does God hear me? I've been praying, I've been asking, does He hear me? Does He see what's happening in my life? Friends, He does. He does hear you, He does see you. Do you see Him? Is a better question. Do you hear Him? When He speaks words to you and lays His own body in your hands, do you see Him? Do you see how near he is to you? Do you realize that in this very moment, you don't have to wonder if God comes close to you. You don't have to wonder where he is because he said he would be present with you and he is, and he gives himself so readily to you in the sacrament. Do you realize that he gives you himself always without failure? It's not like sometimes if we get it right, then he's really present, but if Sean messes it up, then like, well, good luck, people, this week without God. No, do you realize that despite all of this, what makes his presence in the sacrament possible isn't my word, but his. What makes it possible for God to speak all things into existence is his word. So when he speaks, I am present, I am present, we only get to decide if we believe what he's saying or not. God is really present to us. He promises to be, not just in theory, but really and truly. What if this is all true? What if it's really true that God is present, that we get to lay eyes on him and receive him? What if it's just as the Lord says it is, that he's here with us, that we can see his glory and consume him? Would God be so gracious to open our eyes? Let us see. So many weeks uh, you all have come forward for communion. Have you ever asked God, God, let me see. Open my eyes. I want to see angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. I want to know that you're present. I need to know that you're present. Lord, open my eyes to see. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. Maybe this morning you're being invited to put away those youthful passions, those patterns of sin and brokenness that keep you from seeing, that keep you from truly communing with God? What are those things? Would God be so gracious as to like, help you put those away and repent? Would you have the courage to focus on Jesus this morning and nothing else, not the anxieties or the worries that plague you, that burden you? Would God be so gracious as to unburden us and open our eyes to his presence? I think he would. But we have got to ask. Rez, let us now in silence prepare to see the glory of the living God in Jesus Christ that is given to us this morning. And may we, in this exchange, in this experience, this coming close to him and receiving us him, may we be changed forever because he is our hope and our salvation. Amen. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.